0: Hello and welcome to the Michigan State University
1: College of Osteopathic Medicine, our statewide campus system monthly MedEd eForum. I'd like to welcome today our speaker, uh, Dr. Tyler Gibb. He's an associate professor and co-chair of the Department of Medical Ethics, Humanities and Law at WMed. He completed a clinical ethics fellowship at UCLA Health Systems Ethics Center. And prior to that, he completed his PhD in healthcare ethics from the St. Louis University Center of Healthcare Ethics. He also obtained a law degree with certification in health law, um, where he was the editor in chief of the Journal of Health Law and Policy. Um, his teaching experience includes coursework in clinical ethics at the undergraduate and graduate level in nursing and medical schools. As well as at the GME level. He regularly speaks at international and national academic conferences and has extensive hands on experience in clinical ethics consultation over the last decade. Dr. Gibb, thank you so much for being here with us today.
2: Thank you. It's my pleasure. Uh, I'm going to share my screen and ask for you guys to uh, kind of indulge me in. A an online uh, platform that we've used, that we've been trying out, that uh, hopefully is going to make it easier to um, participate and 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 engage in the conversation uh, as we as we go through this. So uh, on the screen, you should be able to see either a QR code, which you can jump to from your phone's camera, or just go to menti.com and enter this uh, code. Um, and so on your device, whatever you log into, you'll be able to follow along with the slides as we progress, and there'll be opportunities for you to participate. So um, hopefully this all works well. Uh, Those, sorry, those numbers should pop up periodically. So I'm just gonna give you a few minutes to or maybe like 60 seconds to log in. Um, And if you have issues, uh, aren't able to participate or aren't able to log in, let me know and we can try to figure that out. So. um, uh, as Deb said, my name is Tyler Gibb. I have been here at Western Michigan School of Medicine for uh, just about seven years now. was one of the in the first wave of faculty hired to start this uh, this medical school here in kalamazoo and it's been quite a uh, quite an experience, quite a ride and so um, part of my obligations my my um, Uh, professional obligations is to do clinical ethics at the two major health systems here in the southwest region of the state at uh, Bronson Healthcare, as well as Ascension's uh, Borges campus, as well as teaching in the UME programs and the GME programs, as was mentioned. So um, lots of hands on clinical experience as well as classroom experience. So um, today, uh, what I was asked to address or to talk about a little bit is ethical dilemmas at the end of life. and particularly, we're gonna look at some cases um, because I find cases to be, number one, the, the interesting aspect of doing medical ethics is actually being uh, in the clinical setting, working with families, working with hospital um, staff, working with physicians and, and patients and trying to actually take some of these big lofty concepts or these abstract ideas that we, uh, engage with so often in, in kind of academic bioethics and actually make them useful and apply them into certain situations. It's a, incredibly difficult, but also incredibly rewarding, so I'm excited to uh, share some of that today. Uh, first, um, just want to uh, highlight and, and mention for the record that I don't have any financial conflicts of interest that are worth um, uh, anything, <laughs> so no, no conflicts of interest to discuss but or to disclose. And today, what what we're going to talk about is the definition or a little bit about uh, how the concept of medical futility operates or how it kind of fails in the clinical setting. Um, Some of the other terms that we use in lieu of medical futility, uh, non-beneficial treatment, uh, inappropriate medical care, some of those things. We're also going to talk about the ethical principles that are applicable or at least relevant to the treatment decisions or the clinical decisions that are uh, necessary at the end of life. And so, a lot of our, our focus today is going to be on that final chapter of somebody's life how uh, decisions get made or don't get made uh, as a patient is approaching death. And then, um, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the concepts of how futility and non beneficial treatment uh, operates within the clinical setting. Um, So, ethics uh, by its very nature, uh, whether you're talking about religious ethics or whether you're talking about um, uh, ethics or moral philosophy as it's applied in the clinical setting, uh, the very root of the foundation of ethics is the examination of conflicting moral principles or moral priorities. and. what that means to me, as somebody who's who spent some time studying this, is that first of all, we have to identify or define what our moral priorities are, and sometimes that's the most difficult part of any of these conflicts: is to, to decide what I, as an individual, believe ought to happen, or what I, as a healthcare provider, uh, think the good good behavior ought to be, and so one way to conceptualize this is to think about what uh, what medicine is what is the enterprise that we are all endeavoring to to be a part of are we trying to uh, heal are we trying to provide service in some other way and then looking specifically at the question what what would an excellent physician and again we can talk a little bit more um, depth about what an excellent physician is or excellent nurse or excellent healthcare provider is but We don't really care so much in medical ethics what you believe or how you behave in your day-to-day life. What we are narrowly focused on and kind of how we are able to get to some of these um, answers that have eluded people for 3,000 years talking about moral philosophy is what do we do in this clinical context? What does an excellent physician do? What does an excellent nurse do in this particular context? And by narrowing the the scope of what we're looking at a little bit, we... um, sometimes get to uh, answers or at least a series of answers that make, um, that have some normative value. And normative meaning that they have some ability to predict what we ought to do or to define what our next steps ought to be in in terms of our clinical decision making. So uh, first opportunity to participate. So just a a brief poll to make sure everything is working. Uh, How comfortable are you in addressing complex end of life ethical issues in the clinical setting? you should be able to indicate on your device, whatever you've logged in with
0: to. So if you weren't able to log in, go ahead and, and um,
2: if you want to participate, go ahead and log into that menti.com, that information's at at the top of the screen,
0: so. just another few seconds to indicate your preferences. So I think as as, as we think about
2: our our own individual comfortability of dealing with ethical issues, I think it's important to to note that part of the practice of healthcare is is being involved in ethically complicated decisions. I don't think that I need to work very hard to convince uh, to convince you that there is a very scientific and a very black and white aspect of medicine, but there's also a lot of gray area. And when there is gray area, one thing to keep in uh, at the forefront of our minds is that there are people who will come to very different conclusions based upon the, the exact same set of facts and. Uh, unless there are situations that are s- s- clearly outside of the realm of what good medicine ought to be, we need we have to be in a, in the business of being tolerant or being uh, permissive or or understanding of different ways of approaching these complicated issues. Um, I, I often tell people that my job is not to provide the right answer as a as an ethicist. That's not kind of what my training is. It's not the appropriate role. But what I am good at doing or what I ought to be good at doing is helping people understand the the breadth of different options that are available and how one might may prioritize a a moral principle or a moral priority against another and really provide enough information or enough conversation, enough dialogue for the people whose moral responsibility it is to make these decisions to actually be able to execute that in a way that um, is ethically uh, justifiable, eth- ethically uh, permissible. makes sense, so. All right, um, I think this is an important quote, at least to, to get started from James Giordano. Um, that, And I think it's something that we often forget, and our students sometimes forget this as well, is that uh, deciding to enter the, med- the field of medicine is voluntary, but the ethical obligations inherent to that profession are not voluntary. Um, that we, we come into this profession, we come into this, this job from a variety of different uh, perspectives and, and maybe good reasons and maybe some some little bit more suspect reasons. But once we, we take on uh, the mantle of being a physician or being a healthcare provider, we, we put on that white coat. Um, we are accepting um, the, the ethical obligations that are inherent to that role. And it's important to note that there are, a lot of different professions, a lot of different ways in which we can choose to make a living in this life. And some of them have a lot of social uh, clout, a lot of social uh, value, and some of them don't. And so there. this reminds me of, an, of, of a story of, of an uh, uh, something that happened to me when I was living in, in, uh, in Los Angeles. And <clears throat> I was at a uh, birthday party at a park and it was, it was probably like a first grade, second grade um, year old child whose birthday it was. And my kids were participating. And um, it was a nice sunny day in, in, in you know, West L.A. and at a park. And there were kids participating in the birthday party and, and doing the games and stuff. But there are also student, uh, people who were uh, just at the park enjoying themselves. And this little girl was was learning how to ride her bicycle. And she was doing, a, I mean, it, she was clearly just getting off of the, the training wheels Uh, stage and and moving into trying to be on two wheels and it was quite wobbly and she was kind of going around this big loop and and as she was coming down the hill she lost control and her feet kind of stuck out and she got all wobbly and she turned hard and ran right into a tree and she kind of went um, you know head over handlebars and and face planted right into this tree and she split the front of her forehead and it wasn't a serious you know it wasn't like we were dealing with traumatic brain injury or anything but it it split the front of this little girl's forehead right, right at the scalp line and it started bleeding profusely and i mean she was like dripping and uh she was freaking out and her mom came running over and her mom was freaking out and um you know screaming for help and, and and it was really interesting to watch from a from a distance and, and not somebody who's medically trained I wasn't gonna in, in, insert myself in that situation but there's an elderly gentleman who was walking his dog and watched this whole thing happen. And after she she hit the tree and she was bleeding uh, and the mom was kind of losing her stuff and and he walked over to her and, and you know set set the leash down and got down, crouched next to them and put his hand on the mom's Shoulder and said, you know, it's it's going to be okay. I, um, I'm a doctor, and I'm and I'm here to help. And uh, the the way in which physically, like she relaxed, she she trusted this individual. Um, he had this air of competence and of reassurance and comfortability. And I think um, what, what that what that spoke to me was that uh there's this value and this importance of being a physician within society um, such that the individuals who come to us and help or sometimes who who need our help have this expectation that we're going to do good and that we're going to follow certain um certain rules or certain ideals um, and it was really a, a really powerful experience to see how immediately comfortable she was and uh, I, I think about sometimes, what if I had walked over to her and, and done the exact same thing as this gentleman and and sat down and put my hand on her and said, "Trust me, everything's going to be okay. I am a lawyer." It just doesn't have the same degree of comfortability. It does. It doesn't elicit the same response from from individuals. And so. I think that's just an indication of the importance of not only doing the work but also doing the work well, and which is something that i as a, as an ethicist as an outsider to medicine um, have the privilege of helping to be a part of um, but But ethics is difficult, and it's often the the ethically complicated questions that really tend to haunt or to to create inefficiencies within the healthcare system if everybody was Um, was a widget and we knew exactly what they how to treat them and and how things ought to happen and there were no ambiguities about who should be making the right decision or when or why, then um, medicine would function, the healthcare system as a whole would would operate a lot easier. And sometimes people who are in the midst of these ethically complicated situations, I think they really do wonder along the same lines as, as what Mark Twain wrote in Huckleberry Finn, uh, he said, "What's the use you learning to do right when it's troublesome to do right? It ain't no trouble to do wrong, and the wages is just the same." Um, and I think that I, I've heard sentiments like this um, from individuals who are frustrated with the the grayness of medicine or the being able to practice the the art of medicine. Um, and where the science is maybe ambiguous, or maybe there's no good data, or maybe there's contradictory data, and there's no clear standard of care of how to participate or how to um, move forward in these situations. But what I think that is important of um, I mean, an important mistake that Huckleberry Finn uh, makes is that the the wages are not the same um, when you're doing good and when you're doing um, not good when you're doing wrong. And this is just a, a, a graphic representation of what uh, this effect is over the course of a career. And so when we have these difficult situations, these morally complicated, messy, uh, ethically problematic situations, cases, uh, we have this acute uh, stress response. And as we, we progress through our, maybe it's our shift, or through our, our service uh, that week, these um the stress and the the burden that comes along with these uh continues to increase but it it doesn't last forever eventually a patient is going to be discharged or the patient dies or you go on vacation or hand off to somebody else and there's an immediate decrease in the amount of stress or moral um, angst or emotional burden that we're carrying and um it immediately goes down and maybe we can sleep better. Maybe we're not so irritable. Maybe we just overall aren't as stressed. Um, But over the course of the career, every time that we have these complicated, challenging situations, whether it's a family or whether it's, um, you know, for some other reason, these cases that stick with us, uh, what what the data has shown is over the course of the career that your baseline gets adjusted with each one of these experiences. And and over the course of time, this moral residue crescendo effect, this is a representation of what burnout looks like or what moral distress or chronic moral distress looks like. And then over the course of time, as your baseline keeps getting elevated with each one of these experiences, um, your ability to provide compassionate care and your ability to actually um, provide the care that you intend is uh, compromised in some way. And so ethics, And uh, there's a lot of other services within within the hospital system, within healthcare, whether it's a uh, critical stress response team, a SISM team, or whether it's social workers or chaplains or or a clinical ethics um, service. Our job and what we try to do is through a variety of different methods or mechanisms is we try to help address the moral distress in the acute setting, but also reduce the the buildup of the, the, the residue and to avoid this crescendoing effect, and so we're, we work really hard to try to push that um, baseline back down towards zero, so you are better able to deal with the next question or the next case or the next problematic situation. So that's really what our goal is: um, is to help reduce that over the the long term. And we do that through through dialogue, through policies, through um, sometimes it's it's legal interpretation or dealing with the the legal system, but sometimes it's merely just um, being someone to be a a safe space in which to have the conversation to express these concerns about whether you um, know what the right or wrong answer is. So clinical ethics consultation generally lumps into these two main categories when they come in. One is about level of care, whether it's code status, um, or whether it's a curative versus palliative uh, goal of treatment, or whether there are disagreements or conflicts between the family and the patient, or between the patient and the team, or between the team and the surrogate. And so dealing with those types of communication breakdowns, um, a lot of them, uh, a lot of those communication breakdowns really come down to um, what the what I said earlier about the the goal of treatment being uh, unclear or contradictory or something like that. So that's that's what a lot of the clinical ethics consultation works focuses on is these two. Um, these two areas. Alright, so today, I, there, there are three ethical issues at the end of life that I want to, that I'd like to kind of talk through. Um, the first one being uh, surrogate decision maker authority. So when surrogates appear to be making decisions that are contrary to the decisions that we think or that we know the patient would have wanted um, at the end of life. And so that, that's that's the first one we'll talk about. So Here's a case, um, probably very similar to a lot of the cases to a case that you, you may or may not have seen in your in your time um, practicing. So an 87-year-old patient is in the intensive care unit, say status post-COVID infection, bilateral uh, pneumonia, significant lung damage, agnostic brain injury. He's been intubated for 18 days at this point. Uh, repeated efforts to wean him from the ventilator support have been unsuccessful. There's general agreement among the healthcare team that he could not survive outside of intensive care setting with full ventilatory support. And also, there's no reasonable hope or no reasonable expectation that he's going to make any type of meaningful long-term recovery. Uh, His advanced directive indicates a preference for no long-term life-prolonging care, um, but is silent on CPR and names his wife as his DPOA. So the wife is requesting that he undergo a trach a peg placement, if it hasn't happened yet, um, and then a, a transfer, if possible, to an LTAC or a SNF for long-term um, care, long-term rehabilitation, and also CPR uh, if he has a, happens to have a cardiac arrest. And so... In this situation, what we have is we have a potential conflict between what the patient's wishes were, as, as we understand them through his advanced directive, versus what the wife is saying at this time. And sometimes these, uh, these conflicts arise in the context of code status specifically, where somebody has indicated a, a DNR status or a DNR preference and uh, a surrogate decision maker, uh, a wife, a spouse, for example, will say, you know what, I I know what he indicated on his paperwork, but I want to make a different choice. I I want him to be full code. Um, Or sometimes it's a situation where there is uh, there's no information about what the patient would or would have wanted. And there's conflicting preferences or conflicting opinions about who should make that decision and what decisions should be made. So if you have two siblings, for example, who are in disagreement about what their, their father or their, their parent would want as far as life-sustaining treatment. And, and so these are particularly challenging because in, in most cases, we um, the, the medicine is fairly ambiguous, meaning that some families or some patients choose to pursue long-term life- prolonging care at a, a rehab facility for example but other families will say no um, you know we're, we're gonna allow a natural death is the underlying illness to to um, to be the cause of the the, the death and, and have them die with with dignity or with with um, uh, with with comfort and, and make sure their symptoms are managed. And so th- there's no clear direction from the medical perspective about which is the right way to go. And so we have to rely upon other people to fill in the gaps about what that decision-making should be. And so um, as we are looking at the reasons why, or the, the, the moral priorities that are at play in, these, in this particular case, um, here are six or seven different ones Different priorities or different um, you know, ethical principles, for example, that are at play, that could be at play here in this case. And so uh, through, your, through your phone or your device, go ahead and indicate which of these do you find to be more relevant to the, um,
0: uh, to the case at hand? So for example, as we're
2: weighing the different um, priorities between um, you know, promoting uh, the principle of do no harm or, or non-maleficence, um, is that the primary thing that we should keep in mind in, in this situation? Or maybe it's uh, honoring the patient's autonomy, assessing the quality of life, like which one of
0: these um, do you find to be more or less um, relevant to this situation? Let me give you a few minutes to think about this one too. All right, we've
2: got a handful of participants. I think, I think uh, as, as you're finishing up, the, the, the numbers will change a little bit. Um, what I like about this, this diagram, this, this way of uh, looking at the ways in which these different principles kind of play off of each other is that it's very unusual for there to be um, moral priorities that are completely irrelevant. Um, So, for example, promoting social justice seems to be a a fairly low one in this particular case. Um, But it's not completely irrelevant. There there are some some meaningful social justice aspects to providing the type of care um, uh, that a patient wants at the end of their life. Similarly, financial burdens. There are situations in which financial burdens are the primary moral principle that we're trying to um, prioritize against other ones. But uh, in other cases, it it, it doesn't, um, doesn't happen that as much. Um, So in this situation, I think that I I would agree with this that that honoring the patient's autonomy um, and the quality of life as well as doing no harm are really kind of the areas in which this uh, the priorities that kind of play off each other in in this case, specifically. Um, So in uh, if we take a step back and look at the, the, the ways in which surrogate decision-making ought to happen, um, regardless of the context, the clinical context, that there are two ways in which another individual ought to make decisions for uh, a patient who's unable to make their own decisions. So a DPOA has to follow two rules when making decisions for an incapable patient. Um, number one, they have to make decisions according to what the patient wants it doesn't matter what i want it doesn't matter what um, you know my pastor wants it doesn't matter what my mother-in-law wants what i'm doing is i'm substituting my judgment what i may think may be the right thing in that situation for what the patient wants and uh, you know the, the term that we hear all the time is a substituted judgment standard and that's really what all of that means is that we are taking a uh, a situation and we're substituting out my my personal feelings my personal judgment for the patient's and so A really good um, patient advocate or a surrogate decision maker will be somebody who's able to recognize what the decision that they would make, but then say, regardless of what that decision is, I am going to execute what I know the patient would have wanted. And sometimes how we know something uh, depends upon the context as well. So if it's documented in an advanced directive, for example, yes. Um, that's a fairly clear indication of what the patient would have wanted. But sometimes it's not documented, and we need to be uh, open and be flexible enough to accommodate what a patient's surrogate um, believes the patient's wishes to be based upon non-documented things. And so there is some concern sometimes that Healthcare providers get into the business of trying to decide, you know, who's telling the truth, or or is there actual veracity behind one of uh, somebody's statement about what the patient would or wouldn't. And I, I think it's important to note that the the courts are fairly different, deferential to uh, a good faith inquiry by healthcare by healthcare providers. And what I mean by that is you are not an investigator. The courts don't expect you to be a, an investigator. Um, it's not your obligation to go in and try to deduce whether someone's telling you the truth or not. But if there are no red flags, and if you, as the as the healthcare provider, uh, make a good faith understanding, a good faith assessment about who is being truthful or, or what the actual uh, decision ought to be, then uh, in most cases, the court's going to um, support that. And that's going to be the the sufficient for determining what the patient's preferences would be. And so if, but it's important to to highlight that it's only if we don't know what the patient would have wanted in this particular situation, then we go into a best interest determination. And insofar as the medicine is ambiguous, like it was in this case, um, the quality of life assessment or who gets to decide whether it is worth it or whether it's within the patient's um, uh, preferences as far as how they want their life to to proceed and to progress, uh, that really is a determination that, that falls to the family members or falls to those individuals who know the patient best. And then it's a determination of what is in the patient's best interest. Globally, and that takes into consideration their their physical condition. It also takes into consideration their emotional and spiritual um, uh, well being, but also like, finances play into that, and, and other types of family dynamics. So it can be really kind of uh, squishy. There's a lot of gray area in there, but insofar as a patient surrogate is able to say, you know, this is this is their values, this is their previous decisions, these are previous preferences, and I think that decision X. Aligns or supports or falls into in, into support of those types of decisions about what their quality of life is, then then that's a sufficient way to make decisions um, in a in a proxy situation or a surrogate decision maker situation. And so, in this situation, the wife may be saying, um, if he may not have indicated that he he indicated that he did not want long term care but when he was thinking about that when he was contemplating that that was not this that situation that he made these decisions about or or his preferences about is different than this situation if she's she's able to explain how it's different and why her decisions don't contradict it directly and may actually support this um it's a it's a type of decision making which we ought to 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 allow or at least give space for um i think if this patient's wife in this situation was saying, you know what, I, I know what he wanted, but I think that he was wrong, or I don't really care what he wanted, or now it's my decision, I get to make this decision, what I think is best. Those are, that's a way of making decisions that's, that's much more problematic, and it's something that we should all, um, push back on quite quite hard. I do recognize that there are situations in which, if a patient's death is unavoidable, and the only thing that that pushing back can can create is more conflict within within that that surrogate decision making process. It it has been my experience that a number of physicians or healthcare providers will take the path of least resistance and and go ahead and, and do something even though they may not think that it's in the patient's um, uh, according to what their wishes are or, or in their best interests. And and that's a that I think that's a a, a pathway that can lead to a lot of. Um, poor clinical decisions. And so, I guess my encouragement would be to, if we know what the patient wanted, we ought to execute that. And only if we don't know what the patient wanted, do we rely upon the the patient's family members or surrogate decision maker to to give us the information about what the quality of life assessment might be. Um, Decisions made for other reasons, for secondary gain, for for, uh, other other justifications are are particularly problematic and should be um, resisted. Alright, so uh, the second topic that I wanted to, to, to raise is about medical futility, and the word futility gets used all the time in a, a number of different contexts, but it's probably the least understood, uh, or at least, um, I don't know, maybe it's not the, the most uh, problematic term in, in medicine, but it gets used really imprecisely and uh, inaccurately and it ends up causing a lot of problems Um, so from a big picture kind of a you know theoretical perspective futility is when there is a goal a stated goal that we're trying to accomplish there's a series of actions intended to achieve that goal and there's virtual certainty that those actions are not going to achieve that goal and so (laughs) uh, it's just want to highlight that it's virtual certainty not absolute certainty of failure um but for example we we can apply this to all all types of uh, different scenarios right and so i i have a goal of being in the the nba and i've had this goal since i was a little kid growing up in indiana um, i've taken a lot of actions in order to achieve this goal i've i've practiced i've played i've bought all the right equipment um but at the end of the day, I'm still only five foot ten and I still am not very fast. I don't shoot very well. And regardless of the, the effort or the time that I put into the action to achieve the goal, there is still virtual certainty that I am not going to achieve that. And so from a from a theoretical or philosophical perspective, the actions are futile to achieving the goal. And it doesn't mean that there's not other kind of secondary value. Um, you know, in participating in organized sports, or exercising, or, or, or being active. But the goal to, to play in the National Basketball Association is, is a futile goal, because there's virtual certainty of failure. Um, in the clinical context, um, th- this same type of framework is, is also applicable. So, for example, if our goal is to uh, adequately treat a viral infection, um, whether it's uh, COVID or whether it's something else, um, common cold or flu, for example, there are actions that we can take to try to achieve those goals. And if those actions include prescribing antibiotics, for example, so my goal is to treat the viral infection. The action I'm choosing is to uh, administer or to take antibiotics. In that situation, we, we could say that, that that is a futile uh, endeavor because there's virtual certainty that the antibiotic is not going to a- achieve the goal of t- adequately treating the viral infection. And of course, there there are you know, strange situations and, and caveats to, to all this stuff. But from, from a kind of purely theoretical perspective, that, that's how futility ought to be used within um, the, the clinical context. Um, what we often find is that the word futility from a really strict um, kind of physiological futility type of um, approach uh, is insufficient to cover all of the different various ways in which we are trying to um, trying to uh, address these these concerning issues particularly at the end of life and so some other language that is often used is is inappropriate treatment or inappropriate medical treatment or non-beneficial treatment or medically non-beneficial treatment and and that expands the scope beyond strict futility into things that may be so unduly burdensome uh, that they don't, they're unjustifiable. And um, so take, take just a second and think about situations in which you have been asked to provide treatments or provide, whether it's medication or a, an intervention of some sort, that you believe to provide no medical benefits that might be considered non-beneficial or or, uh, medically inappropriate in some way.
0: All right, maybe we'll just move forward. Um, so
2: um, medically ineffective treatments are actually addressed explicitly in the, the AMA Code of Ethics, which originated in 1847. Um, but sometimes physicians, and particularly residents and, and students, are surprised at the frankness of the, of the language that's in the AMA Code of Ethics. And so under Section 5.5, Medically ineffective interventions, it says at times patients or their surrogates request interventions that physicians that the physician judges not to be medically appropriate. Requests for interventions that are not medically appropriate challenge the physician to balance the obligations to respecting the patient's autonomy and to not abandon the patient uh, with obligations to be compassionate yet candid and to preserve the integrity of medical judgment. And it goes on to say. Physicians should only recommend and provide interventions that are medically appropriate, specifically scientifically grounded, and that reflect the physician's considered medical judgment about the risks and likely benefits of available options in light of the patient's goals of care. Physicians are not required to offer or to provide interventions that in their best medical judgment cannot be reasonably expected to yield the cl- intended clinical benefit, or achieve agreed-upon goals of care. And I think uh, that that aspect of the, of the code of ethics from the AMA is often forgotten, that if we believe as a healthcare team that not only is this not going to work, um, but it may be harmful, we're under no obligation to do that thing. But further, we're not even un- under an obligation to offer it. And so CPR should fall into this, and and dialysis, and but um, you know intubation, ventilation, um, sometimes artificial nutrition, hydration would fall into this. That um, we are not being deceitful, we're not being um, paternalistic. If we, in our best medical judgment, believe that the intended clinical benefits uh, are not achievable through these interventions, um, so there's a lot that's packed into that. But I think that that's a in some ways, physicians see that as a um, an unyoking that that it's a, it's permission to be more. Uh, maybe a little bit more directive in the treatment that they are providing. But also it pushes back against this idea that physicians or or healthcare providers are merely a vending machine for healthcare services and that anybody who has a quarter or 50 cents can go in and and push the buttons and and receive exactly what they want. Um, That is not the way that medicine has traditionally been conceived of and it, it shouldn't be the way that we conceive of it now. So finally, Respecting patient autonomy does not mean that patients should receive specific interventions simply because they or their surrogates request them. Um, it's okay to say no. And in some situations, it's um, not just permissible, it's not okay to say no, but it's um, it's obligatory or it's mandatory. You ought to say no. Um, and how we get to that uh, saying no to patients or surrogates is sometimes can be a process that involves surrogate uh, or hospital policies or sometimes state laws involved depending on, on how the state statutes are written. Um, but that doesn't mean just because there's a process and there's a way to protect or, or, or to to honor the due process and and, and the possibility of mistake by, by healthcare providers does not mean that, that at the end of the day, we are unable to say no to patients who ask for things that are medically um, uh, non-beneficial or, or medically inappropriate. And We often think of this in the end of life context as as being withholding or withdrawing a ventilator or life support in in some way. But this also applies to things that are much more routine or much much more ordinary. Maybe it's opioid prescriptions, or maybe it's um, requests for other types of pain medication or requests for uh, scans or screenings that we don't believe offer any type of medical benefit. even in those kind of much lower stakes decisions, we still ought to be following what the the AMA Code of Ethics uh, uh, asks us to do, and and that is to not provide medically um, ineffective interventions. So um, translating the the kind of theoretical into the more practical, um, medically non-beneficial treatments or medically ineffective treatments, meaning those that ought to not be offered and not be provided, um, might, might be conceptualized in this way. And number one, holding no reasonable expectation of achieving its intended physiological effect. So antibiotics for a viral infection, for example. But also, um, uh, uh, there are other situations that there's no physiological benefit that we don't that aren't as much of a struggle for us sometimes, and so I can never remember the, the, the psychiatric condition where somebody believes that their uh their limb is not actually theirs and ought to be amputated. Um, there are uh, so number two would be that if uh, a, a medically if, if a treatment would only serve to prolong the patient's irreversible dying process, which is underway. So then it could be determined to be medically inappropriate. Um, so in this situation, think about somebody who comes into the ICU, has liver failures and DIC and is bleeding out. Um, the, the application of massive uh, transfusion protocols or providing um, you know 10, dozens and dozens of units of blood to this person who is actively just, just bleeding out um, is, is not correcting their underlying condition Um, And if the patient is far enough along that it could be considered just prolonging their inevitable dying process, which would be um, not not a benefit to them as well in in some situations. And then the third category of medically non-beneficial treatments that that most policies and state laws contemplate is that when there is so much burden or risk and so little benefit, that, that it's disproportionate. And sometimes we forget to think about the the aspects of, of burden or, or or harm in terms of the loss of personal dignity, um, ongoing pain and suffering, um, other forms of, of dignity assaults or harms, and in this is this the category in which most of these these conversations um, or these treatment decisions um, fall into is that you know what it may physiologically work we you're not actively dying but boy, it's really a, a really harmful, really risky um, uh, proposition that we're considering, and so we're going to say no. Um, maybe the, the, the easiest way to describe this would be situations in which a, a surgical team decides that the, the patient is not a surgical candidate, that for, for whatever you know set of criteria they go through to make that determination, the burdens and the risks of them actually dying on the table outweigh any potential benefit. So, um, that's generally a situation in which we say, you, you know, that's that's okay for the physician not to do that and also not to offer surgery. So the, the third area that I want to touch on just briefly is unilateral decision-making at the end of life. And this is these are situations which are fairly unusual, but also have a really kind of interesting, complicated ethical dimension to them. And so, um, again, if you could just indicate, uh, is it uh, whether you agree with one or which of these two propositions you agree with. It's never okay for a team to make end-of-life decisions, or it's okay, it
0: may be okay for the team to make end-of-life decisions. All right. So whoever the two people are who are participating.
2: Oh, three. Now, if I ever find you, I'm going to buy you a beer. So I appreciate it. Uh, so I, I think this is, this is probably an easier question than, than I, I hoped it would be. Um, making decisions at the end of life for our patients um, can be uncomfortable for some teams, particularly if there are situations in which this, we disagree with the surrogate or if there's nobody to make decisions. And so here's another example of a case. So a 43 year old female with advanced breast cancer admitted with multi-system organ failure. She's undergone significant amounts of aggressive treatment, but has not responded. Uh, Metastases throughout her chest, including her ribs into her sternum. she's very fragile and and, um, frail. The team agrees that there's no reasonable hope of surviving this hospitalization. And her family has been with her through this entire journey, um, providing uh, support throughout her treatments, and they continue to ask that everything be done. I mean, they're using language like she's a fighter. You know, we, we want everything to be done. It's in, it's in God's hands, perhaps, if, it, if they're using kind of more religious or miracle language. Um, the team is unanimous in their recommendation that CPR in this situation not only would be uh, ineffective in bringing her back um, but also would cause significant amount of harm a significant amount of suffering because of the the condition of, of not only just her her organ systems but also her you know her her bone structure that it would be a a very gruesome situation so the family is unable to agree to a no cpr order and despite rec- and they do concede that you know what we understand what you're saying doctor but we promised her that we would tr- we would you know, be her advocate, be her champion, and try to do everything we can. Um, So this is a situation, um, so again, indicate whether um, you in this situation would be comfortable making a unilateral decision about her code status. And unilateral, when I say unilateral, what I'm I'm meaning is we are taking that decision on as as a healthcare team and, and making it without the family or with the either against their wishes or
0: in situations where they do not um, have a, a surrogate decision maker. All right, there's my third. Okay, good. Um,
2: So, unilateral decision-making, particularly at the end of life, can be uh, troublesome um, because of our desire to allow patients to be uh, the directors of their own medical care. And I think um, the most important question in all of ethics, particularly clinical ethics, is continue to ask the question, why? Why is this decision being made? I can tell you that being on the the receiving end of middle-of-the-night phone calls from physicians in extremis, asking about do we should we intubate this person or should we not intubate this person, as a lawyer, as somebody who has a you know advanced training and moral philosophy, I can tell you we never once talked about whether or not someone should be in, intubated or not. And so the the question may arise: Okay, so what benefit do I? offer or is there to be to a clinical ethicist, ethicist in, in that type of situation? And the answer is, um, you know, maybe there is some. And if there is some, I think it's that we are are trained and attuned and sensitive to justifications and trying to walk through why we would make this decision. And so often my my, my response in those situations when they've happened is, okay, tell me a situation in which you would do this. Why would you do it? Um, tell me a situation in which you w- would not do that, why you would not intubate the patient. Um, what's the situation in which you would provide CPR or which you would not provide CPR? And usually through walking, through, asking those questions and walking through through those examples of why and why not, uh, we get to the underlying justifications, the underlying rationales for why these decisions may or may not make sense. And so, for example, we... Um, uh, in this particular example, I'll just go back to the, um, to the case. Um, in this situation, it may be the case that the patient's family feels like they have made some sort of a commitment or obligations to the patient, and, in, and by consenting to a do not resuscitate order, that they would be violating what their promises, what their obligations are to her, which can be very troubling, um, especially if this is truly the end of her life. Um, this family may perceive that them consenting to a no-CPR order um, is them giving up on her or, or doing wrong by her, which would be something that they would have to live with for the rest of their lives. Um, and so th- th- there's situations, even if when the, when the medicine is so clear or the medical recommendations are so obvious, that there's still good reasons why a family may not come along or may not agree. Um, and in those situations, particularly, if the only thing that we can do medically is to do harm, Then maybe that's no longer a situation where we need the family to be involved as much. Um, So this is this is a case example that I I had um, when I was uh, doing my training at UCLA where um, this woman. she she had always uh, been a, a champion and been an advocate for for her sister. And she said, you know what? I understand I understand the medicine and I understand that it's gonna be horrific if you do this. And actually, I don't want you to do this, but I can't be the one to make that decision. And so we as a healthcare team said, you know what, we're gonna take that off your shoulders now and we're gonna we're gonna assume that burden and we're gonna make this a medical decision and we're not gonna offer this. And and there's good as we talked about earlier, there's good ethical justification for that. There's good reasons why, um, you know, good good support for healthcare teams doing that. And as expected, the patient um, declined very quickly uh, over a matter of hours and ended up dying without uh, undergoing CPR. And the family afterwards um, came and, and and they were thankful for us uh, for doing that. And not that, that them being gr- grateful afterwards is justification that we made the right decision, because I, th- I think that we can't rely upon somebody after the fact being grateful or not to tell us whether we did right or wrong. Um, but we were able to take that burden off the family and, and assume that burden is the healthcare team not to inflict this and, and still allow the family to preserve what they felt was, was right and still um, being able to balance those, like I said earlier, those moral priorities. So. Um, so I think the the quote that I want to end with is this one from Atul Gawande in his uh, really interesting, good book, um, Being Mortal. And uh, I think this is something that we need to, I don't know, maybe print and, and have in the for, foremost of our minds in, in in not only just palliative care and hospice care, but also all of healthcare care, specifically in intensive care. Um, so he says, in a war that you cannot win, You don't want a general who fights to the point of total annihilation. You don't want Custer. You want Robert E. Lee, someone who knows how to fight for territory that can be won and how to surrender it when it cannot. Someone who understands that the battle, uh, that the damage is greatest if all you do is battle to the bitter end. And I think that we all have seen that in medicine, and I think that there's an opportunity for us to do better by our patients, by um, being aware of some of these ethically complicated situations at the end of life. Um, so uh, with that, I will uh, end, stop sharing uh, my screen. Looks like we have a few minutes. I'm happy to entertain some questions um, or comments or um, derisive uh, derisive comments, even. Um,
1: Tyler, but, what what's the process of, of you know for, for mainly for our residents that are just now getting into their practice when mm-hmm. when they feel like you know the team maybe need to t- needs to take on that decision making role, um, At what point do you bring in you know the the hospital ethics team? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that's uh, it really depends upon the uh, the clinical situation that you're practicing in. Uh, some hospitals, most major hospitals, have uh, some sort of ethics consultation service or team. Uh, if that's the case, then involving them earlier is always better than involving them at the 11th hour. Um, so when, the way that I describe or why I encourage our residents specifically, but also uh, attendings who, who haven't worked with our service very much, is that if you have a thought, maybe there's an ethical application, maybe there's an ethical issue here, if that's even crosses your mind once, call ethics, because we're really good at saying, no, that's not really my job, or it's not really an issue yet, go ahead and, um, you know, he, here's who you should talk to. Talk to risk management, talk to social work, talk to somebody else who, who maybe it falls in line more with what their, um, you know, patient uh, patient affairs, for example. Um, but I, I think what, what's, what's important to note is that the process changes dependent upon the clinical care setting. And so hospitals sometimes have very explicit, well-developed, laid out processes. Um, Sometimes it's not. And sometimes it's a matter of you having to make a couple of phone calls to try to figure out if and how um, these resources might be available. Um, Yeah.
1: Thank you. I don't see anything else coming uh, in the chat, but I imagine um, as people uh, watch the recording of this that we will have questions come in and, Hopefully I am able to forward them on to you as as the expert here. Um, but again, thank you so right. much for being here with us today. Uh, appreciate your time.
2: Okay. Thank you very much. Yep. You thank can you. definitely get a hold of me by, by
0: email. So All thank right. you so much. Perfect. Have a great day, everybody.